Hey there, Super Sober Heroes. It's your host, Sober Steve, the podcast guy. And before we jump into today's episode, I want to take a brief moment to ask for your help to shape the future of gay A. Over the years, this podcast has grown and evolved as I've grown in my sobriety. And recently, I've been investing wild amounts of time, money, and energy to find ways to level up this podcast so it can get heard by the people who need to hear it. I want to take a brief moment to check in with all of you, though, to see what you love about the current show and what could be better as I'm growing and moving forward. In the show notes is a three to five minute survey for you to complete. I kindly ask that you pause this episode and take the time to complete it if you haven't already. You are kind enough to give me 20 to 40 minutes of your time each week when you listen to these episodes, and I want to make sure it's time well spent. So please let your voice be heard. Thanks, SoberPod, and enjoy the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Gay A, a podcast about sobriety for the LGBT plus community and our allies. I'm your host, Steve Bennett Martin. I am an alcoholic, and I am grateful for my new service positions this quarter in my home group. As of this recording, I am 409 days sober, and today we're welcoming a guest to share their experience, wisdom, and hope with you. Thank you so much for reaching out and agreeing to be on the show, Daniel. Thank you. Glad to do it. It's it's nice to be able to spread what happened to me and the change in my life because of sobriety. So I'm very happy to be here. Yeah. Excellent. Well, why don't we j- jump in then with a kind of a introduction of what it was like during your activity? Okay. So Daniel, I'm an addict, alcoholic. I prominently go as an alcoholic because alcohol was basically the major drug of choice throughout my life from being a kid. And what it was like, it was you know, I'm sure that we've heard this. It was fun until it was no longer fun. And, uh, you know, I started, I, I grew up in the Midwest in a very small farm town in Iowa and coming out in the early eighties was probably not the easiest thing in the world to do as a, a gay man in a very small 900 person town. So there was a lot of animosity, lots of wanting to be liked there. And I could pass as my older brother. So I would go to the state liquor store on Friday afternoon, skip school and literally load my car up with as much alcohol as I could push into it and go back to school and sell it. And that gave me a sense of being needed. And that's kind of what I felt, you know, the very beginning of alcohol was the first drink I took was at 12 years old. And I got completely obliterated. It was my two brothers. They were having a combined bachelor party and the combination of whiskey, beer, and peppermint schnapps was probably not the brightest idea in the world. Uh, So it was kind of a bad situation. I ended up, you know, throwing up all over the guy's car on the way home that took me home. And it was a brand new Trans Am in 1970, I guess, what, six or five, whatever it was for. And, and then ended up getting punished by my parents the following morning and having to go to mass at seven o'clock rather than our normal 10 o'clock hour. And after I got home, I had to band cattle and I'm not going to go into the details of that. It's just, let's put it as uh, you're making a bull into a steer. So anybody that understands that terminology from a farm will probably joke and go, oh my God, you had to be kidding me. But yeah, that was pretty, pretty ugly. I fell in love with a guy and moved to Southern California. I knew that I needed to get out of Iowa. Uh, So February of 83, I moved to Orange County, California and was with a gentleman in college for a while as well. And then we split up and kind of life started, I started dabbling into other things other than alcohol. And, you know, it was fun. I was having a great time and 
you know, unfortunately that lasted several years. Uh, I was using a lot of cocaine and alcohol at the time going to bars and, you know, being social and Miss Butterfly and everything that I could possibly be at the time. So, so it, it, you know, back in those days, it was just kind of, everybody was doing it. It was the eighties, you know, and I felt that it was pretty normal. And so I didn't think that I had a problem with alcohol or drugs, even though, in the late 80s and early 90s, I had accumulated my fourth DUI. And I, at that point, had to spend six months in jail, which was pretty ugly as a gay man. Fortunately, it was in Santa Barbara County, so it was a little bit nicer, I think, in the long run. But that still didn't tell me that I was an alcoholic. I had to go and pick up three more DUIs after that. So I've had a total of seven DUIs in my life. And even after the seventh DUI, this is how absurd our alcoholism and disease of alcoholism is. I went home and cracked a bottle of wine in the afternoon and just got out of jail and was like, okay, no problem. I'm at home. I'm drinking a bottle of wine. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And, you know, the story that I'm sure so many of us have thought that, you know, we were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so that's kind of what it was like. I mean, I did a lot of geographical relocations because of alcoholism. I, I moved from, like I said, the Midwest to Southern California, Southern California to Cape Cod, back to Southern California, back to Cape Cod, to Germany, back to Cape Cod, back to Southern California. I've done enough geographical relocation. I finally am you know, back home in San Diego, I'm grounded. I have an incredible support group that is around me now, et cetera. And what, what kind of happened, I, I don't know if we're on that step yet or not, but kind of what happened was I was living in Provincetown. We all know that gay Mecca and how crazy that can be in the summers. And I was managing an inn and bar and restaurant there for about five years. My ex and I had split up. And I thought, what a great place to go kind of unwind and let loose. And by, I want to say the end of the fourth year, it was just basically a bar crawl for me. I would get off work and drink myself home, which I lived on the West end of P-Town and get up in the morning, go to work without drinking, but repeat the same situation over and over every day. And finally got to the point where I felt suicidal. And I had attempted suicide two other times. We can talk about that because I do have the diagnosis of major depressive disorder, and I'm not ashamed to admit it as well as PTSD. So it was kind of like the light bulb came on, but really didn't come on. It, I was talking about it with friends, but I wasn't really acknowledging it yet. And some friends reached out. I ended up back here in San Diego because of them. And started my journey. You know, my best friend on the East Coast, I cheered off with a, a bottle of Dom Perignon, and I've never touched alcohol since. Uh, I still was smoking a little weed, and then I finally stopped the weeds. So I've got 1,286 days, so a little over three and a half years of complete sobriety in my lifetime, and a almost five years of where I started recovery when I had given up alcohol at that last moment. So it was, it was pretty intense. There's a lot of things in my life and in my story. I mean, you know, that I could get into that would, you know, uh, lots of fun. I can't say that it was all bad, but I think I put in some notes later, the most ugly time that I ever had, you know, while drinking was spending the night on Broward County floor jail because I'd been picked up for a DUI in Fort Lauderdale. I'd been at one of the bars. I had 
wigs and drag clothes in the back of the car and all kinds of stuff. And uh, I was being a total jerk to the officer. And so he was a total jerk to me. But, you know, long story short, I ended up on the floor in Bower County Jail. The toilets were not working. So everybody was defecating in the showers. And so that smell was basically pungent throughout the entire area the entire time I was there. It was the most disgusting thing I've ever lived through in my life. I swore to God I'd never have another DUI after that. And I did. So it's definitely a disease. And I work a program one day at a time right now to make sure that at least for today, I'm sober and clean. And I have jumped into the career of recovery and given up the corporate world. I am now a counselor at a drug and rehab center here in San Diego. It's an all men's facility and it's residential and I love it. So I've been doing that now for about three, I want to say a little about three years, a little over three years. So three and a half years of complete sobriety. And I want to say that I started this career, it would have been May of 2019. So back in school for it, I'm just finishing that up. And then I'm planning on finishing an LCS step and becoming a licensed clinical social worker so that I can come back and actually help basically with therapy in the gay community is, is the goal. So that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah, no, that's that's amazing and definitely inspiring. I know that actually, like, I'm probably going to pick your brain like down the road because I'm in the process of like knowing that I want to do something in the recovery field and just trying to figure out where to go or how to get started. So, sure, sure, we will certainly save that for off mic though. And I mean, no it, it, it sounds like you you have a lot of amazing things going on in your life. I mean, how would you generally characterize what it's like now? Like, oh my god, what it's like now, Jesus. So getting sober. And when I became sober, I didn't have a car. And six months into that, I ended up driving what I called the rickshaw. It was a Chinese scooter and it was falling apart and I'd have to screw the light bulbs back in and just to get down the street or anything. And I've gone from that, you know, three and a half years into this to a plug-in hybrid Ford Fusion that's, you know, titanium level, all of the bells and whistles. So the material things, as far as where I live, it's beautiful. Beautiful. I can't, my back door is the Cleveland National Forest. So when I look out my window, it's mountains and, you know, coyotes at night and all kinds of good stuff. And, you know, what it's like now on top of the material things that come back, there is such a sense of peace and serenity and calmness in my life, even when things are off the freaking charts. So as things go sideways, which they do in life, there's no way that we can, you know, predict what other people are going to do or how they're going to react. But the only thing that we could do is, you know, make sure that our actions are, you know, genuine and honest and forthcoming. And, you know, that's the kind of life that I live today. And one of the things that I have to say that I heard this in a meeting from somebody who had, you know, 40 plus years when I first got there. And I knew that it was a goal that I wanted to get to. And it was a goal where I never want to have any regrets. So I don't want to regret that I've left a dish in the sink, or I don't want to regret that I did something wrong to someone. I don't want to ever have a regret or resentment or any of that anymore. And, and if I just live my life where any of the decisions that I make, I don't want to ever have a regret for it it's coming from the heart and it's really honest. Uh, you know, I believe in kindness and peace and serenity. And the more I can spread of that, the better off we are as just people. So 
what it's like now. It's beautiful. You know, I have an amazing life. I have, as I said, a, a group of a support group that I love. I am venturing out finally into the dating world. So that took a little while because there was some crystal meth that was involved in all of this. And, you know, the typical and that I had about a three year stint with that, but it's been 16 years since I've ever touched any of it. So it's a long time, but you know, I have to, I, I couldn't have imagined this life for me when I was out there drinking and using, I always wanted things, but I wanted the wrong things. And what I mean by that is I, I wanted all of the material things I wanted to be liked and I wanted to, you know, make sure that I was the house that everybody came to for the after hours party or whatever the hell it was. And those were all the wrong things. And now I am, you know, basically really content. I, I, I have a super busy schedule. I mean, I'm going to school anywhere from 15 to 17 units and I hold down a full-time job. And I drive 40 minutes one way to either of those. So two hours out of the day are completely gone just in, you know, travel. And yet I'm able to budget, you know, myself into up until this last semester, I was doing still seven to 10 meetings a week. And I did 110 meetings in the first, I'm sorry, 111 meetings in the first 90 days. I have a very solid, I think, foot in recovery. And I just... It's so hard to describe because the content feeling that I have now, I would have never even dreamed of having when I was drinking and using. And what it's like now is I don't have to worry about anything. You know, my bills are paid, finances are in order, my relationships are in order. I'm able to think about starting to date and kind of that's starting to happen a little bit. You know, just it's a very peaceful life now. That's, I, I think, the best way to describe it is it's a very peaceful life, even with the chaos that's going on in the world. Yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing that, you know, especially with you being sober the past few years with everything that the world has gone through, you know, that you're finding peace that's really beautiful. And with all those amazing gifts that the program seems to have given you, what would you say is your favorite part of being sober? Go back to just never having a regret. Yeah. I mean, I get up in the morning, I'm able to meditate, I'm able to do my prayer, I'm able to do my reading, whatever I want to do for the morning, start my day. But my favorite part of being sober is I never have a regret anymore about anything that I trust my intuition 100%. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't have to, if the, if the gut or the heart is starting to you know, nudge me and say, this doesn't feel comfortable, I listen to that. And I wouldn't have done that before. I would have doused it with, you know, alcohol, cocaine, crystal meth, you know, ketamine, acid, whatever. I mean, I've done it all. So, you know, my favorite part of sobriety is just actually the peace and the serenity that's come with it. It really is. Yeah, for sure. And that's certainly a change considering how you were talking about, you know, feeling uncomfortable in your sexuality, like growing up where you did. I mean, how would you say that 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 sexuality played a role in your addiction? The a great deal. I mean, I, I think that that goes back all the way to high school when I was, you know, filling the car with alcohol to be liked. You know, I wanted to be liked because I was different. And, you know, at a bar or whatever, I wanted to be liked. And so I would end up, you know, buying drinks or having the after hours party. It was always, I wanted to be, I wanted to have some type of attention. I didn't get that when I was growing up. My family is, was, you know, the typical family. There wasn't divorce or anything in it, but it, 
I was the sixth child. And so by the time I came around, my parents were like, here's the keys, see you later kind of thing. I mean, it was, they really didn't want to have a whole lot to do with me. And, and all my brothers and sisters were already out of the house. So I kind of, from age 12 on up, I was on my own. And, you know, the alcohol played a big part in it. The meth, once I've had two really long-term relationships, three actually. The second one, when it split up, when we split up, I had never even touched crystal meth at that point. And when we split up all at once, I was offered some and, you know, the gates were open and the dragon and, you know, the, the wigs and witches and everybody came out and, you know, lots of fun. But at the same time, it was, that was the, I had to use that drug in order to have a sexual relationship. So I couldn't be intimate with somebody unless I was high or drunk. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how it affected me. Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly have heard you know, other listeners shared their experience. I mean, I guess at the time I thought it was the worst thing ever, but I kind of lucked out that my first experience with crystal meth, like was a bad one because it kind of turned me away from it. Well, I would say like, yes to almost everything else after a couple of drinks. That was the one that I was like, was like, no, I can't do that. So, you know, now, now that you are sober and starting to date again, like how would you feel your sexuality plays a role in your recovery? It's a good question. And I don't know how to answer that because I don't think that it does play a role in my recovery. It's just part of who I am. Mm -hmm. So I'm a gay man. I'm out. I'm fine wearing Jimmy Choo pumps in my own house and anywhere out that I want to, if I I need to, with a pair of jeans and have a good time. I don't do that often, but every once in a while I do. And so, and everybody accepts me for it. So I don't have, and I haven't done it even since I've been sober, but it's, I don't think that my sexuality is part of my sobriety. My sobriety is first. It's foremost in my life. And a lot of my friends are straight. I have a lot of gay friends. It doesn't matter. But at the same time, you know, I'm new to that, Stephen. I'm I'm new to that intimacy again, to that vulnerability. I think I put some notes down that you may have read about trust. I have a huge thing still with trust because of some PTSD when I was young. And then it kind of continued on into my adult life. Some things happened that re-sparked it and it just happened. So, you know, learning how to deal with all of that has been um, challenging on some days and some days rather easy. I feel like that warm blanket, like, oh, I get it now, or that surrender when I ha- when it happens, it's like, oh, that makes sense. Even if it's just on my own and I've thought it through of how to handle it. So the sexuality part of my sobriety, I guess I'm still exploring. Yeah. I think that's the best way to put it. You know, I mean, I am who I am and I have no problems with that, but I've never been a person for labels. So the, it, it, to me, I just sex to sex and, you know, when it happens, it happens and great. Yeah. Now, I mean, before I would, you know, have ramped that up with some kind of stimulant of some type, but not anymore. Yeah. I understand that. And what are some practices you use in your daily life to help keep you sober? Meditation is a huge one for me. And I'm going to start off with, yes, I meditate while I drive and people are like, how do you do that? And it's called just being mindful of the fact that you're driving. That is a meditation. You know, there's walking meditation, there's moving meditation. It doesn't have to be that you're just sitting and being quiet. 
I have been a practicing Buddhist for a while, but I've really gotten into that a great deal since I have gotten sober, being very mindful about what I do. And my daily practices are, you know, habitual. I get up in the morning, I read the lavender light, which is sitting on my coffee table in the middle of my coffee room. I usually read the daily reflections every few days. It's not a daily routine with me anymore. It was for the first three and a half years or three years at least. Um, and then I have two other readings that I do. I spend at least 20 minutes in prayer or meditation before I get out the door. Uh, and, you know, a healthy lifestyle as far as food is concerned, definitely. And I need more exercise, but I try to do it as often as possible. It's just the healthy food was also a big part of, you know, me being overweight, trying to get that off. And, you know, just being mindful of that. I in the in the Buddhist religion, we talk about you know being mindful of everything. And and Thich Nhat Hanh, who passed away this last year, talked about even being mindful of when you're doing the dishes. And so I find if I'm starting to get spun out or ramped up, or the the committee in the head is starting to have too much of a conversation on me, I do something as simple as wash the dishes, and just am very mindful of washing that dish, and it will. St- Stop the committee in the head almost immediately. So those are some practices. I still go to about three to four meetings a week right now. That's still in my practice for staying sober. Uh, and that includes different meetings. It doesn't mean just AA. I do refuge recovery. I do ACA, which is adult children of alcoholics anonymous or adult children of alcoholics. And then I do AA. I've done some NA here and there. It just depends on who I'm with, what their needs are, what I feel like need, I need to do. But that's in my life as well. But the daily practices really is the being mindful of my day, the meditation, the prayer, and the readings to set myself on the right track first thing in the morning. Get out of bed, make the bed, because then I've already got an accomplishment done. You know, I've accomplished making the bed for the day. So one little task is done. I can check it off my list. And then I move forward with the others. So that's kind of what I do. That's inspiring. I know that I have a really good nightly routine for like reflecting back on the day and meditating and things, but my morning generally, if I'm able to get up in time for work, it's a blessing in its own, right? (laughs) So I definitely admire people who are more morning people. I've learned how much I love sleep in my recovery. Like I was always up at like six or seven, like probably because I was like going through withdrawal when I was drinking, but now I can sleep until the alarm goes off. And even then I'm ready to hit snooze a couple times. So yeah, I, I, I've been finding myself getting a lot more sleep lately too. And I, I work a lot of overnight shifts at the treatment center. So my sleep is pattern is completely disrupted right now. And I just sleep when I can. And I also will use that, you know, snooze button, except I'll just say, Hey, Alexa, you know, snooze for 30 minutes and let her do the rest. Yes. As everyone <laughs> listening's Alexa goes off. <laughs> now, in addition to all of our listeners that have a good amount of time under their belt and use this to kind of keep them going, we do also have a good amount of people who are either sober curious or newly sober. What kind of advice would you give them? Um, you know, my advice to somebody that's curious about getting sober is give yourself a few days, try it for a while, try everything, try different meetings, try, you know, sponsors, try groups, try everything until you find something that you're completely comfortable with. And you may not be completely comfortable with anything, but the one that is the, I want to say maybe the most comfortable out of all of them, which I found to be AA. So it, it, you know, and don't just try one group, you know, try several, you know, it is, you know, or did I have something here? You know, it, it's, 
something that give yourself 30, 60, 90 days, try to stay clean or sober for that long of a period. If you're not able to make it that long, you know, it might be, you know, a hint that you could reach out to somebody and, you know, reach out to people. There's a ton of us out there that are so willing to help. And, you know, I love people and that's why I'm in the industry that I'm in. I was in the hotel industry before, but, you know, this is a helping industry as well, but really on a much better beneficial level, I think for people, but try everything is my, and I don't mean try drugs, try everything to stay sober, go to different meetings, go to different places, go to your doctor. It doesn't matter. Therapist, try it all, you know, and talk to him about it. Yeah, that's definitely great advice. And as someone who reads so much, I'm interested to hear, do you have any favorite mantras or quotes you like to try and live by? Well, it is something that is not in any of the books, but recovery is not microwavable. Mm-hmm. And that is something that I heard when I walked into a room one night and the gentleman and I are still good friends to this day, but, you know, getting sober and clean, I wanted everything yesterday. I wanted all of my life fixed yesterday. I wanted the bank account, the boyfriend and the house on the hill immediately. And that's just not how it works. You know, if you take the patience that you have, learn how to have more. And, you know, but I I like the comment of, you know, recovery is not microwavable. The second favorite would be, you know, your first five thoughts are not your friends. Yeah. Those are two good ones. I, I never heard, I haven't heard either of those before, but I really like them. The recovery isn't microwavable bit. It's true. You know, I'd rather cook dinner any day than put it in the microwave. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Now, I want to thank you for being on. Now, definitely stick around because we're going to be heading on over to our Patreon page for a post show. But do you have any last bits of kind of words of wisdom or anything you'd like to say to the, everyone listening? You're not alone. Reach out if you feel that you need to. There are several of us and so many people that are willing to help. And, you know, don't be afraid to ask for it. It's okay to ask for help. You know, I didn't want to do that. And when I did, my life has changed completely because of it. So don't be afraid to ask for help. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for being on, Daniel. It was a pleasure getting to know you better. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yes. And thank you listeners for tuning into another episode of Gay A. Like I mentioned, if you head on over to patreon.com backslash Gay A podcast, we will have the after show up for you to listen to as well, where we'll dive more into your recovery journey. If you're listening and interested in sharing your story like Daniel here, do what he did. Reach out to me via email at gayapodcast at gmail.com and let me know that you're interested in joining this family of guests. And be sure to follow us wherever you're listening so you can get new episodes when they come out every Thursday. Until next time, stay sober, friends.